0: I'm Dave Laird I'm Matt Booker
1: And I'm Tim Pesson. Uh I'm a German immigrant from, uh, in Canada And uh, I like books that make me laugh And then make me ask, wait, what? <laughs> and I hope to talk about that here in The Great Concavity with you guys Uh-oh.
0: <laughs> nice. Right on, Tim. Well, welcome, everybody, to episode... This is 41. We're we uh, we're getting there. Hey, Matt? 41. 41. That's pretty good. Uh, we have a very special guest tonight, Tim Persson, who's a, a friend of mine here in Victoria, British Columbia. And this is cool because usually when we record episodes, it's just me by myself in a room. Uh, Matt's by himself in a room in Austin and wherever our guest is by themselves in a room all connected on skype but this time you're here in my living room like at my kitchen table so it's uh, very
1: cozy here it's I very
0: cozy yeah. it, it's worked out very well um so tim is uh is someone that i've we've i think we've gone out three times or so to hang out right and um and meet for wallace beers in victoria and uh it's been great uh, hanging out and, and talking about literature and philosophy with yeah. you. That's a big part of your background. Right. Um, so we'll fill in in details like that. Um, Tim is a, a recent doctor. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, graduating here from the University of Victoria in British Columbia. He's originally, as he said, from Hamburg, Germany. He's a writer, translator, a musician. He plays in a band called Grimwood. Uh, they're playing next Friday, yeah, next Friday at Wheelies in Victoria. <laughs> Uh, if you're around, if you're a local citizen, come check that out. Um, he also holds a state examination degree in philosophy and English from, help me out here, Universität Hamburg.
1: <laughs> Universität Hamburg.
0: Oh, yeah, there you go. That's that's better. Uh, in 2010. And then since 2015, he's been teaching here as a lecturer in Victoria and where he completed his PhD, as we mentioned, in a very cool acronym called CSPT, which stands for cultural social and political thought which is uh in july you finished you defended your dissertation successfully uh and your your thesis or your dissertation is mainly what we'll talk about tonight and it's called fictions of proximity the wallace nexus in contemporary literature which is a title that i really i really dig that's great uh incidentally your external reviewer was who Uh, Jeffrey Severs Jeff Severs who is a familiar character on this show for listeners he's been a guest and was also my external reviewer (laughs) for my my work Um, so that's a very cool uh, connection so Tim again welcome
2: thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me very happy to be Uh, here and and your um, supervisor Christopher Douglas he was um, on a panel with me at ALA American uh, Literature Association this year that's right Um, So it's a very um, small community. We all sort of know each other, (laughs) I feel like. Um, Yes. Speaking of proximities.
1: That's right. (laughs) (laughs) I think
2: any... Anyone who does uh, work on David Foster Wallace in British Columbia, I think, knows about all the four people who also (laughs) work on David Foster Wallace in British Columbia. Jeff Seavers being one of the main ones. That's
0: right. Uh, Speaking of which, um, since being back in Canada uh, since mid-August, we've been home from New Zealand. Uh, The last time we recorded, Matt, I was in New Zealand, so it's been a little while. We apologize for the, the large gap between episodes here. Um, but twice I've got to go out with Wallace folks since being home. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was in Vancouver and Parquet Courts played, and uh, Aveline Hilda and Michelle Martin and Nicholas Noble and my friend Nathan Shep. Uh, we went to a place called Taco Fino for dinner, and Andrew Savage from Parquet Courts joined us. So we had a <laughs> wow. pre-concert uh, taco fest. So together. I have to
2: interject just there: is that the <laughs> Uh, tacos are better in austin yeah i'm sure it's uh, true and, and the uh, parquet courts is in austin tonight playing at the austin city limits festival and
0: why uh, are you talking to us right now uh,
2: i i would rather be here doing this podcast All right. i'm more of, i'm more of a reader you know, a music person uh-huh. well um, but a lot of people i know they're they're playing to a huge crowd you yeah. know? i mean it's got to be like a hundred thousand people down at this wow it's, it's a yeah hu- that's that's huge big. Festival. that is huge for them too right? it's a huge festival and parquet courts is uh, in town probably eating tacos right now somewhere <laughs> post-show yeah. post-show yeah
0: andrew in the emails leading up to the event was very skeptical of uh british columbia taco joint and i, I assured <laughs> him that uh while they may not be authentic you know uh tex mex or mexican there's a west coast uh, taco vibe that that's done very well here um i eat at taco fino in victoria pretty often like once once every week or two usually nice uh and he was pleasantly surprised he said it, said to me at the end that like okay this, this, i'm on board <laughs> it's good um so that was cool uh and then i guess it was, was the last weekend tim we went to shazia he's ramji's was two weeks poetry ago, reading yeah, yeah two weeks ago mm-hmm. okay yeah yeah uh it's all blurring together yeah. from life's been really hectic Um, Shazia who was uh, a guest on episode 32 I believe Matt Um, she had a poetry reading here in Victoria she was launching her book Port of Being and uh, Tim and I took that in as well as uh, Mm -hmm. listener Hannah Mune Henderson Mm -hmm. and uh, we went out for drinks after with a few other of the poets that read and we went to the um, the James Joyce pub
1: (laughs) yes yeah
0: (laughs) so that was pretty apt for where the conversation went a lot of Wallace talk Um, and uh, I gotta say Shazia's book is phenomenal I got home that night and read the whole thing cover to cover until 2 in the morning or something and uh, you can get that from Invisible Press we'll uh, we'll link to where you can buy that in the show notes Uh, so huge shout out to Shazia for for gaining up the courage to do like a massive book tour across Canada and, and just really really crushed it so that was great um I heard a joke recently. What do you call three white dudes in a room talking?
2: A podcast. A podcast. <laughs> yeah. So that's the theme of tonight's episode. All right.
0: Three dudes almost all together in a room. It's a podcast. <laughs> um, we fulfill the criteria, right? We Check. do, yeah. <laughs> we all have beards, uh, fairly short beards. Um, Matt's is probably
2: the longest right now.
1: Mm-hmm. I just shaved recently. I'm
2: gearing up. Well, I'll <laughs> save that. Um <laughs> I think at our end of year wrap up, I will have more to say about podcasts. Like I've Uh probably listened to more other podcasts this year Mm -hmm. um, than any other like type of media I have consumed except for books. Mm -hmm. That sounds about right for you. I think um, the line between what is a podcast and what is, I don't know, radio or what is uh, uh, all of those lines are going to blur in the future. Mm -hmm. So.
0: I guess the difference is that like podcasts are just self published, right? So mm-hmm. anyone can
2: put one out. Mm-hmm. But the quality, I mean, sure. there's a huge difference in like Yeah. the top 1% of podcasts.
0: Yeah. Uh, of which we are clearly. So, <laughs> congratulations to us.
2: I'd put us in the top half. <laughs> top <laughs> half.
0: Yeah, that seems that seems about right. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard some that are are much worse off quality-wise, like audio quality-wise than ours. So, we're doing we're doing okay. We're middle of the road. Uh, speaking of which, we've been we've been at this for three years. This month, this is our third wow. uh, third anniversary. Uh, October twenty fifteen was our first episode, so this is like our our birthday episode with you, Tim. So oh. welcome to the party. Cheers.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and uh, thanks everyone for hanging in with us this
2: long. It's been really cool. Um, yeah, it's a big milestone because uh, you know I'm not great at. Well, whatever. It's it's a good milestone, but I want to do more. I feel like we need to do more um, episodes. And one of my goals starting now is to do more. Um, we we have a couple of other episode ideas in the pipeline, and mm-hmm. uh, we have a bunch of things that, that hopefully if they work out, um, we'll have even more exciting stuff in the future. And and not these huge gaps in between episodes. I think that's an important thing. Yeah, we
0: used to be kind of like every two or three weeks was our average, and we've kind of slowed down a little bit to like once a month on average in the last six months. Mm-hmm. And part of, part of that's been like life stuff with me in New Zealand, but um, yeah, I think every if we can hit every three weeks or so, that's pretty good. Get back to where we were. No signs of slowing down though. That's that's not no. in the agenda at all.
2: So yeah. So- I want to get Tim in the mix here get and way in the mix here, uh, T- Tim, why don't you start out by telling us, um, you know, you have a pretty unique background for, um, people we've interviewed. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how <laughs> you, you, you discovered Wallace? Was it when you were in Germany or what, you know, what, what was that like for you? Um, as a student, you know, were you in university when you first read him? What, what, what's your story?
1: Yeah, I, I uh, thinking about that today. I re- remembered that I had first encountered Wallace in a small German literary magazine or a zine, really, just and it was uh, I forget the title, but they published a translation of uh, the the Marxian essay together with. I believe a translation of Girl with Curious Hair in German under Mädchen mit komischen Haaren. And then uh, they also added a few pages from uh, the Marxen book from Wittgenstein's Mistress. And that was my introduction to Wallace, so it really kind of prefigured how I came to his work, <laughs> you know, from a very philosophical angle and <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, very much um, along the lines of some of the thoughts he's developing in the Markson essay. Um, so, so that's how I first encountered him really through this sort of German literary avant-garde there, uh, not through university at all. And then, um... I was lucky enough to be able to study in Boston for a year, and I think that was around that time when I actually ended up purchasing Infinite Jest, and as with so many people, it, it ended up sitting on my bookshelf for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you weren't <laughs> before... walking the streets? Uh, Not yet. The territory, no, no, that came like that. later. I, I, uh, I had other things to read, and I, I completed uh, that year in grad school there, and then went back to Germany, and then I actually started thinking about uh, reading Wallace and Um, I ended up doing a master's thesis or state examination thesis with my German supervisor on Wallace too but I actually ended up reading Infinite Jest um, on a train ride from uh, Boston to San Francisco. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> halfway through, I got stuck in, in Chicago for a couple of days. And I think that delay just gave me enough time to really get into the book. Uh-huh. And so, um, unlike some other people who started but then never finished, I had enough time just sitting around on the train uh, to, to actually read it. And Did you finish it on the train? Before uh, you left I think it started? almost. I think really? I had 200 pages oh, left wow, after that. That's cool. That's, yeah. great, that's like the fastest I. I've ever heard. Of oh, actually. well, like I said, I mean, you just sit on the train. Yeah, just, you had a good situation for. And, it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I think the whole Gately sequence at the end, I think I read that a little later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was um after that. And then I ended up uh, doing graduate work on, uh, on on Wallace um here in you in in uh, Victoria as mm-hmm. well and uh, decided I wanted to do the dissertation on him primarily but i also wanted to do a multi-author dissertation and then just thought you know wouldn't wouldn't it be cool if i just looked at sort of the constellation of people in his uh, proximity or vicinity or Mm -hmm. or even a little bit more remote but you know everything being held together by sort of the idea of it being a large conversation about literature and philosophy and Mm -hmm. yeah so that's a little bit of my background
2: (laughs) and when you were first encountering him i mean what kind of other american writers or what what was your you know you know what what other things were you into were you sort of did he fit well into your wheelhouse or was it something not really that would initially interest you
1: oh he fit in really well i was okay. a huge don delillo fan um, okay. I probably read everything about DeLillo <laughs> after I graduated high school in Germany and my dad gave me a copy of all his books and I just really? read the whole wow, almost cool, the entire cool yeah cool dad thanks dad <laughs> I'm not sure he's listening but um, yeah so I was really into DeLillo and I think that was probably what opened my eyes to Wallace too yeah just, that's you know, my gateway too yeah white noise great. yeah exactly white noise yeah. in particular Underworld, Libra yeah. and and then the later stuff I really like the body artist too it's such yeah. a compressed little work but um, yeah I really I, I love DeLillo I even Went to see him read in Hamburg around the time, uh, and got him to sign a copy of Cosmopolis, and um, <laughs> so that was really my entry into American literature. Even though that's also what I ended up studying in Hamburg, but it was really DeLillo and and yeah. um you know some other postmodernists. I, I started reading Pynchon, but <laughs> yeah. I came to Pynchon more through Wallace. DeLillo oh, yeah, was yeah. my first love, really, yeah. and then I sort of step by step after people had heard that I liked DeLillo, I got the recommendations for Wallace mm. and. I remember there was a German literary magazine at the time that had a short piece on Wallace and called him sort of the future of American fiction. And I, I felt like I had to check that out. If that's the future sure, you know, I need yeah. to be privy to that, you Yeah, that's yeah. about tennis and drugs. That's that's pretty out. much it, yeah.
2: So did you grow up in Germany? Were you a, a, a native German speaker?
1: Yes, I grew up in Germany. Okay. And then uh, as a high school student, I spent a year in Connecticut when I was 16. Um, mm. And then after that, I came back to Germany and then did a year in, in Boston when I was in my mid twenties. Yeah. And then oh, wow. came back to, it was sort of a back and forth over the years, you know? And yeah.
2: So after you had had read that, I mean, you, did you read him in translation or did you, did you get the English? It was
1: in translation, which oh, is really it? interesting. Oh, yeah. Cool. If, especially in retrospect for a writer like Wallace where language uh-huh. matters so much. Uh-huh. Right. And where I admire the language so much. I, I feel it's interesting that I, yeah, my first exposure was through translation, hmm. um, but it didn't, especially because I really started by reading uh, the Markson essay. I, I don't think um, it mattered that much because, mm. it, I mean, that essay, of course, has a very unique style, too, but the idea is really were interesting to me at the time especially Mm -hmm. the whole idea of literature as a literalization of philosophical themes and Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that the philosophy can't convey it because it it doesn't speak to the body and the heart the same way that that fiction that fiction can yeah Yeah. so um but then I very quickly um started reading I mean when I started reading Infinite Jest I realized you know you have to read Wallace in the original right yeah Mm yeah so you've since read infinite just in english i've read it, i've only read it in english there's a german translation that came out a few years back i think by a guy named blumenthal um, but, uh, I have not read that actually. I mean, Bl- Blumenbach. 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 Thank you. That's Sorry. right. Yeah. That's oh, right. So you read infinite just in English the first time, I did. but yeah, you
0: yeah. read the Wittgenstein empty planet. It's in German. just that one German literary okay. magazine oh, gotcha. that I, okay. yeah, I, I thought you was meaning yeah. that you read infinite just in German no, first and no, I was like, I Oh wow, that's fascinating. No, it okay. was, a, it was cool. in English. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> cool. I, I haven't, I, that was the only Wallace in translation that I read. was that yeah. first exposure after that I switched to the English. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. So huh. Ulrich Ulrich Blumenbach, who translated um, Infinite Jest into German, und That's right. Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Wow, bravo! Yeah. yeah, I
2: I believe that he also translated The Pale King into German as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my understanding is he did a very good job, yeah. and he did post on our Wallace email list um, several times about. Uh, you know, asking for interpretations of things that were, yeah. you know, oh, a little really? less wow. literal. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is amazing. Yeah. Um, and this this has happened with many translators, just because Wallace does so many, you know, idiosyncratic things that are not really uh, translatable yeah. strictly. Um, so I think it's always interesting to see how translators deal with it, and usually the ones who put a lot of thought and time and effort into it. Um, you know, end up with a better product. And I know you said in your bio that you have been a translator too. So I wanted to ask you about like, what's your experience with that from, I assume you're going from English to German. Is that correct? No,
1: I actually ended up translating from German to English. Um, I've done a couple of smaller projects. The biggest translation project I've done was um, a big monograph that my uh, supervisor in philosophy published in Germany a few years back. Um, In German, it's called uh, Der Begriff des Arguments. And it was translated as the concept of argument, or I translated it as that. Um, And it's actually a a book of philosophy, but it's written in a way that I think it has bellatristic elements. You know, it's not uh, not a very analytical work in that sense. So I felt like it was almost like translating fiction or literature at times, at least. And Mm. it was very fascinating to do that. And it really, in some ways, almost changed my thinking a, a little bit about, the status of language, um, but yeah, I, I admire what literary translators do because, like you say, it's it's such a, a monumental effort to not only move the language but kind of move the whole contextual apparatus that gives the language mm. a meaning, right? And you got to shift it from one cultural setting to another. And I remember That's that at Blumenbach. I, I thank you for reminding me of the name, Matt. Mm. Um, he, mm. I remember reading that he's somewhere. Wrote that he even changed dialects. So I think there, mm-hmm. the, the uh, scene in uh, Infinite Jest where there's a character with a sort of Irish inflection, he changed that to a Bavarian dialect. Right? Oh, really? <laughs> Which I, I think so, yeah. And I, I'm, I might be wrong, huh. but I, I remember this is what he wrote at the time, and to me that was. Um, the you guy know, that talks about having a turd with a pulse? That's okay. the, I think so, yeah, exactly, right? And now change that to a Bavarian slang, right? And, wow, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that's it's radical, and in many ways it's probably the only way you can really translate fiction, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. that's
0: an interesting aspect of it that I've never considered before. Yeah. I know that Robin O'Neill on her podcast, Me Reading Stuff, always talks about how translators are her biggest literary heroes. <laughs> she always is, like, shouting out, like, oh, this is by my favorite translator, says yeah. his name, like... Yeah. Um what it really yes. what, what
1: translating really uh, in, in some ways uh, changed for me was to think about um, this this uh, shift between two contexts and uh, you know before I was very much under this sway of some you know deconstructionist and uh, phenomenological ways of thinking in which language is such a key anchor and and door really to reality and translating uh, thoughts from one language to another really made me think that there is something there that i'm shifting from one um if you will context or one text to another and this something that's being moved there has to be some entity of sorts right so mm-hmm. i i really felt a, a little challenged in my own ways of thinking about the sort of transcendental status of language mm-hmm. because if you if there's something you can express in two different languages that something has to have its status on its own you know what mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. so I, I felt very challenged in my normal ways of mm-hmm. of how, how is we sort of raised intellectually to think about language when you when you realize okay yet, when I can, if I can think about how something would be perceived in that one language, and whether it would adhere to a standard set up that I have sort of in my head, mm-hmm. well, then that standard has to express something, right? And so I don't know. I, I really, it's not that I I really still believe that language has you know a, this sort of door function to how we perceive reality, but it, mm-hmm. it this pushed back in my own head. You know, it it was kind of interesting as an huh. experience.
2: Well, Tim, I believe there's inherent value in that. That's one thing. It's super frustrating where you know there's market demands on translations who can get something published or not. That really yeah. determines like our whole language's access to that work. Yeah. And uh, th- I, this, I think, is mm-hmm. related also to uh, Wittgenstein's Mistress, right? Mm-hmm. Where it was it was rejected like forty five yes. right. times, fifty four times, and and you know it was it was really like. Even the people who thought that it was valuable and important said, "Oh well it 'll never sell yeah, and you know there 's this other part where uh, to be a good translator, you sort of also have to be a savvy business person in some ways <laughs> yeah. you know uh, and it 's the same with any writer, especially of experimental literature, but um you know i'm i 'm deeply i think we're all deeply indebted to. The people who did take the risks, yeah. you know, and the people who, and the translators who who put a lot of effort into um, I, one thing we have not talked about on the podcast is um, Bottom's Dream, mm. which is Arno Schmidt. Oh, we've mm. talked, mm. We've talked mm. about yeah, it. I'm yeah, familiar yeah. about that? Um, I've talked about it as like an interesting thing, but like actually talking about the work is oh, almost impossible. Right. Yeah. Um, but like the 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 kind of work that goes into that, and that's also published by Dalkey Archive, which. Uh, you know, John O'Brien, who's still the publisher of Dalkey Archive, um, and Stephen Moore, who was an editor there for a long time, really brought in Wittgenstein's Mistress. And those guys are both still around, and I hope they're still uh, listening to this podcast. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, we are thankful to them for, like, being the ones to actually put money, um, you know, next to an important work of art Mm -hmm. which you know to me it just points up like what other things did not get published because they were not funded right Mm -hmm. um but I'm really curious about going back to your take on encountering Markson and Wallace Mm. together Mm. in a sort of philosophical context can you give us a little bit about like where you were coming from from like a philosophical point of view at that time or yeah
1: absolutely um Mm. well I guess then as now I I was very much a Wittgensteinian. Uh, that's sort of my own um, introduction to philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I studied philosophy in Hamburg, and um, it was a very analytical department in the sense that they would teach a lot of contemporary analytical philosophers. But there was always Wittgenstein. as this sort of, you know, hard to classify presence among all the other analytical philosophers. And I fell in love with it. And it, I still believe it's one of the best ways to learn how to do philosophy is to sort of follow uh, the convoluted thoughts of that man, you know, in his, major, in his major books, and then try to come up with answers your own, of your own. And I, th- that was sort of my, my frame of mind at the time. And paired with that, I was also trying to do some fiction of my own. And I was really trying to synthesize the two approaches on the one hand, thinking deeply about philosophy and existential questions, but on the other hand, also trying to create art out of that, you know. So you can probably already <laughs> tell that, you know, like finding finding Wallace was just, you know, kind of eye-opening to me because uh-huh. that to many in many ways that's what he's writing about in in the Empty Plenum, right? Um Yeah. But my my own uh, yeah, I think that was my introduction to Wallace, this idea of how can we literalize or fictionalize or dramatize these philosophical questions? Um, in ways that make them an experience rather than state them as an assertion, right? So um, I was very intrigued by his approach of literalizing, um, as he calls it there, uh, the the, the, uh, the theoretical axioms of the Tractatus and, and turning it into um, yeah, a literary experience that can help you um, understand the kind of metaphysics and worldview that Wittgenstein is trying to outline there. Mm. And in my in my opinion, this also really gets to even what Wittgenstein himself was trying to do at the end of the Tractat is when he kind of reverses direction and says, you know, you have to throw away the ladder after you've climbed up on it. And in, in some ways, I think that experience of of moving upwards, throwing away the ladder, that kind of affective experience mm-hmm. of how you relate emotionally to the philosophy is, I think, also what Wallace was trying to get at in that early essay and then... I, I personally don't think that he ever really gave up on on that approach to fiction, mm-hmm. but of course that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> the Bermuda system, yeah, yeah be that's there. even before, right? Yeah, 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 totally. And people, he has called that a dialogue between Derrida and Wittgenstein right. too, right? Yeah. So it was always already there. I think um, for me, it was probably it, it came to me at the right time in my life because I was also trying to synthesize these strands. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Huh. Well, and I, I think it's uh, interesting that Markson became the one to put, you know, Wittgenstein in the title of a book, yeah. when ultimately, I think he's far less interested in um, Wittgenstein and philosophy in general than Wallace was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think what he's doing there is much more metaphorical, as you said, uh, as something greater to do with art and sort of his own interests. Which you probably I haven't read the chapter in your dissertation entirely about uh, but I want to get into that because I think it's super interesting cool the stuff about silence, mm. I mean the demand for silence, I mean here you for people who haven't read it, like I don't know if you can give us like a one minute summary of what <laughs> what what
1: is that book about, but yeah. uh, well, go for it. Yeah, yeah well, I can try I mean i I think the the book is highly ambiguous in what it's about and in in part that's the point right i think what we find there is a woman who's sitting on a beach at a typewriter and trying to write a novel which is kind of an anti-novel in the sense that there's no plot to it and no characters because of the way she perceives the world which is Mm. to say that she doesn't know whether she's completely alone or whether um there are still people out there at any rate she can't find any kind of source of other people at, at anywhere, you know, this so. is Kate, this is a Kate, Kate. Yeah. And, um, so to me, that was fascinating in so many ways because, uh, first of all, the question comes up: Does she uh, is she mad or is she sane? Is it really true that no one's left? If that's the case, how did it happen? Mm-hmm. And and I think uh, the ambiguities of the text the text never really clarifies that for us. It sort of disseminates like post apocalypse. Yeah, exactly. Apocalypse right? It has a bit of a, a post apocalyptic okay. huh. uh, tinge to it, but then it, that that never really plays out except in huh. the sense that the world is empty and all is left is just objects you know and and even animals are sort of in most cases an illusion and she never gets Mm. any kind of another quote-unquote soul to uh, relate to Mm. Um, and and I found the ambiguities to be quite interesting um, and and I think Markson in an interview himself said that uh, this way of writing allowed him to get at much more multifaceted question of, of reality and how we can be certain about reality, then he would have been able to dramatize in the way he first started out doing the story because he first wrote a, I think about 125 pages of a more straightforward kind of a post-apocalyptic narration, you know, like what's going on. And, and um, after that, he discarded that and just jumped right into in media's race, you know, mm-hmm. jumped, jumped into the story and we're kind of faced with the same questions and ambiguities Kate is faced with. And um yeah, I, I think to me it's it's really um a very sustained meditation on our limitations um as as human beings, you mm-hmm. know. And uh, I think that the situation that Kate finds herself in is a beautiful metaphor and I think Wallace and Marks and both probably took it the same way of the um rfr attempts at knowing other people and knowing the world but never having the kind of certainty around that that can actually lead to being completely validated in what we consider to be knowledge right there's always a nagging doubt if you will and so i i really thought this was a very interesting starting point for connecting that particular work that Wallace was interested in in the late 80s with some of the thoughts on skepticism that he was also interested in around that time namely especially those by his one-time teacher Stanley Cavell hmm. uh, and then he did that short time at Harvard trying to study under Cavell and it didn't really work out but right. to me it always suggests that there was this confluence of interests in him with Marxen and Cavell and then Around the same time, you know also writing the essays like the Marx and Review essay mm-hmm. and i I thought of you know I thought of this period in Wallace's life as quite decisive because it really sort of leads up to his breakdown, but then also synthesizes some of the strands that were really important for him throughout the eighties you know and mm-hmm. so I, I thought of this as a good way to start my own uh, dissertation here because it would sort of Create a bit of a large um, canvas on which I could talk about epistemology <laughs> and literature and fiction and philosophy and uh-huh. uh, yeah, try to all talk. the big five, all the big <laughs> five dollar philosophy terms, totally. ontology, yeah, all that stuff, ontology. Um, term, yeah. Remind me, so it's
0: been a while since I read the Empty Plenum, Wallace's review of Marxson. Does he start that with the uh, Anthony Burgess quote? That as we are all solipsists and all die, the world dies with us. Only very minor literature aims at apocalypse.
1: No, I think that's the the one on Updike, right? Oh, or am okay. I wrong about that? I think I can't remember. The, actually, like, I know it's somewhere. I know. Yeah, I, know I remember I this the quote. quote. I think yeah. I'm pretty sure what it's quoted for sure. I think it's in the great male narcissist piece, but I might be wrong. But I think the empty plenum starts with a quote by Cavell and by... Yeah, I think it's by Cavell. Oh, okay. And that was another hint for me to think about that whole connection to his... Mm-hmm teacher then yeah Yeah.
0: because that whole this plot description you just gave of wittgenstein's mistress (laughs) sound that reminds me so much of that absolutely absolutely
1: yeah yeah
2: well and it's there's also a whole tradition you know of like the omega man which is like the last the (laughs) the last man on earth is that a video game in the 80s uh it was a movie and (laughs) then it was remade with uh will smith where he's like the last man on earth um like I and am then Legend, then there, I have to watch this. Yeah, and, <laughs> then, and then there's a there's a comic book I will tell you called uh, that is uh, Jonathan Lethem wrote it. Mm. Oh wow! Uh, and it's uh, it's a it's about this premise of like the Omega Man, um, and it. Like I say, there's a long tradition of that, like the last person on Earth. And it's sort of a fantasy that anyone can indulge in. Like, right. mm. what, what would it be like if you were yeah. the la- the only person on the whole planet? Mm. And Markson does get into kind of the details of like, you know, I think what his character does is like go to the, <laughs> you know, the Metropolitan Museum of yes. Art in New York and like put up her own paintings. That's <laughs> right. Yeah. Have you, you know, guys seen The Last Bur- Man on
0: Earth, the TV show? I have not. With, uh, with Will Forte, he, like, so he's the last man in America. Some some event has happened. We don't really know what it is, but he goes around to, like, major art galleries and just takes all the paintings and puts them in his motorhome and then, like, finds a mansion and just puts them up and defaces them. And, like, you know, it's like the Declaration of Independence as a napkin And yeah. in, the, in the first episode. <laughs> like, it's really funny.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty great fantasy, but like Tim says, it, it quickly emerges in the book that... You know, you're you're questioning hmm. the the really the sanity or reality of the narrator. Right. But, yeah. Um, so your, your dissertation, Tim, is really uh, there's three other books in there. You want to tell us the big four that you built your argument around?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's pretty long. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, yeah. I mean, the, so we we started talking about. Um, the wittgenstein's mistress chapter where i try to develop this question of how to relate to skepticism and, and that one in particular is about um the the idea of i primarily discuss it as a meditation on external world skepticism the entire world as being somewhat unfounded or uncertain the second chapter then moves that into uh the realm of interhuman relations so in that chapter i've tried i, I tried to focus on american psycho because i think that um the the some of the violent excesses in in Bateman, Patrick Bateman's behavior can be read as well as a um, as a consequence of an idea of what it would mean to know someone else that is ultimately always foiled, that always fails. And the way that Bateman, to my mind, responds to these failures of knowing another um, is through violence. Uh, so I, in that chapter, I try to mm-hmm. talk about. Uh, how other mind skepticism, the idea of whether we can, how and whether we can ever know another person can also be dramatized and literalized through literature. Um, and that allowed me to then also speak about different ways in which Wallace and Ellis talk about how to engage the reader and how to, um, you know, conceive of the proximity of the, of the reader-writer relationship and the narrator and a reader relationship in different ways. And that lead to, to my mind, different ways of literary doing literary ethics, really. Hmm. Um, and then in the, in the third chapter, I, I return to a topic that uh, a lot of Wallace uh, scholars have talked about, which is Wallace's relationship to irony, of course. And um, after I, you know, talked a lot about the sort of epistemological considerations that go into how I personally read Wallace, I also seem to find a way to think in new ways about his relationship with irony. And uh, in that chapter then I, I talk about a distinction I make between to to different types of irony, which in some ways helped me uh, undermine this uh, idea that Wallace is trying to get us out of irony. Mm -hmm. Um, And to my mind, uh, that's very much true of an idea of irony as detachment Mm -hmm. uh, and cynicism. But I also still find his work to be profoundly ironic in ways that I also find Marxism to be ironic. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is an irony that I think, what I I would call irony as proximity, that actually is more a source of insight uh, rather than a... Wallace might call, you know, a way of hiding. Um, and, and so that mm-hmm. so that the two epistemological chapters at the beginning on What Can Sheen's Mistress and American Psycho kind of allowed me to revisit uh, Wallace's infinite jest in, in some ways. And then um, in the fourth chapter, I focused on uh, someone who comes later, Zadie Smith, who's, I think, profoundly influenced by Wallace mm-hmm. um, and, and has said so too and written yeah. about Wallace in <laughs> yeah. that beautiful essay, right? The Brief, oh. brief Interviews essay. Um, and so, in that uh, book, uh, in that chapter, I focus on the Autograph Man, which is a book that has often been uh, called uh, as written under the influence of Americans like Dave Eggers and David Foster Wallace. Right. And so, I, in that book, I talk about her relationship to metaphysics and and humor as well. Yeah. So, those are my four books there, if <laughs> <Yes>, you will. <laughs> well,
2: obviously, we're most interested in one of those four books. That's right. Um, but for for. I mean, for me, uh, Wittgenstein's Mistress is one that I, I go back to, and I think I enjoy rereading frequently, and I can dip in and dip out of uh, often. And I like that book, yeah, uh, as as a sort of standby. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't have a lot to say about American Psycho or the Autograph Man, but I, I do have a question for you about the Autograph Man because um, I heard an interview with Zadie Smith maybe two years after that book came out, and she. I felt like she was sort of disowning in the book oh, and the yeah. way that Wa- that Wallace sort of disowned Broom of the Broom System. Of the system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that that was his first book and that was her second book. Yeah, But I think there's some parallels and towards their, I don't know if it's truthfulness or honesty or authenticity in those books but it's something that feels off to me i was wondering if you felt that
1: that's interesting i yeah. um yeah i don't what i remember reading was that she i forget which essay this was it's in her first essay collection uh somewhere she call recalls rereading her books and uh she says having reread the Autograph man on an airplane and actually uh chuckling at times and feeling that it was you know an okay work whereas the other ones she felt almost incapable of rereading because Mm. she just felt very embarrassed so i don't know maybe it's also about when Mm. we reread certain things what day of you know time of day or uh whatever mood we're in i I don't know i i find yeah i mean the autograph man feels to me very much like um apprenticeship work in in many ways she's Mm -hmm. really trying things there um I personally thought it was fascinating because of some of the uh, intertextual connections to Kafka and Walter Benjamin and thinkers like that that I also reference in my dissertation. Mm. And the idea of having a conversation between these literary figures sort of allowed me to then look at how do Wallace and Smith, for example, read Kafka and how how do um, Alice and Smith relate to Walter Benjamin's reading, you know, and, and so on and so forth. So, so mm. that's why I focused on that novel. you Yeah. Mm.
2: I just think there was uh, a lot of reaction to it when it came out as a follow-up to White Teeth, yes. that it was not... You know, w- Wallace, his follow-up work yes. to Broom of the System was... Infinite jest, <laughs> yes. Uh, and so that's it's not really a great comparison on my end. But <laughs> I, I want to get back to a couple of these ideas, like how they relate, and, and maybe if we just focus on Marks and Wallace, I will have more to contribute. Sure, or, yeah. Or, no, or Dave will... Uh, is about the ideas you you have about stuckness and and silence. Can you summarize how those fit together with these kind of nexus of writers?
1: Yeah, um, so so the whole idea of silence um, basically allowed me to contextualize uh, this group or maybe even this generation of writers um in terms of literary history i think so what i tried to do especially in the introduction was to be very uh careful and, and, and mindful of how these figures uh think about silence in their works and i i, I On the one hand, I think my first exposure to thinking about silence here was through the uh, Markson essay where Wallace really talks about the, what he calls the importance of silence uh, and uh, how the book uh, doesn't speak loudly, but sort of whispers and um, uh, is very indirect in the way it's trying to make its points. And so that really first got me to think about um, the possibilities of gesturing towards silence through literature and then I uh, realized that even in Delillo and Pynchon as two other precursors to Wallace's work silence plays such a such an important role um on the one hand in End Zone the silences of the desert that Gary Harkness is wandering through and then in Gravity's Rainbow you have the 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 silence even at the very end of the book when we're Mm -hmm. supposed to hear uh, the group of people chiming in but that's the end of the book right and um other moments of silence in that book also really stand out. So I, I realized that there was this interest among these early postmodernists in, on the one hand, silence as something that is, as Wallace writes in reading uh, Endzone, horror. There's something really horrible mm. about uh, mm. um, being faced with the undifferentiated chaos that can be silence. right? On the other hand, there also seemed to be something in gesturing towards the the plenitude and the fullness of of silence that cannot be conveyed through human speech and when i when i started thinking about this i realized that a similar discourse is happening in philosophy at the time with both wittgenstein and heidegger uh, but also even adorno and other uh, contemporary philosophers um, being very interested in silence on the one hand as um, uh, I would almost say a, a continuation of representation by other means if you will um, but then also as a almost moral imperative after the Holocaust when Adorno writes you mm-hmm. know uh, after Holocaust uh, we can't have any more poetry or we can right. have any more art because all of Western civilization is is caught up in metaphysics of presence as Derrida would say and is therefore implicated in this drive towards abstraction and this drive towards destruction that comes to uh, its culmination point in at least how I describe it here in the Holocaust but you could also look at the history of colonization etc mm, mm. so so there was the, it seemed to be this double movement looking at the two aspects at least two aspects of, of silence and um, I I thought that Wallace especially in the Marx and Peas was so attuned to um, uh, how silence uh, can be operative in that work and so I, really, I became really interested in how he maybe uses um, the silences in his work um, to speak and to um, gesture past, you know, the metaphysical enclosure, gesture past the accustomed ways of thinking towards something that is perhaps more encompassing, but then also leads us beyond the word and beyond uh, the written page and lady smith actually writes somewhere that what wallace was trying to do was to make something happen off the page outside mm-hmm. language which is something curious for a thing of literature to do <laughs> sure. she, she writes somewhere <laughs> right and uh-huh. so th- that again confirmed my sense that there's some kind of interest uh, between these authors in the promises and the horrors of silence um and i kind of followed up on that a little bit and um yeah, so so that was
2: what. Well, I th- I thought that was super interesting. I great. just have to 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 just jump in to say that whenever I first read your abstract, I was like, well, uh, silence as you know, response to the Holocaust. I thought uh-huh. that was fascinating because this generation of writers that you're focusing on, I didn't think were responding to to that cultural, I don't know, moment at all. At, But I had heard similar things about Uh 9-11 and that and that like especially in the days after 9-11, it was sort of saying, you know, words have failed. What can we say? There's no there's no response that language can really have here. Like we have these images that are being replayed over and over and, you you know, we sort of need to. To just wait for a response, and there was a, there was a big. I mean, Jonathan Safran Foer was a part of this too. Mm-hmm. Of like, Don DeLillo responded to this as like, mm-hmm. how do we write a yeah. novel that responds to nine eleven? And Steve Erickson most I, recently, I guess. That, hmm. Steve Shout Erickson, hmm. the Twin Towers. I mean, a lot of a lot of writers, I guess, feel that there's a waiting period and then a response. Hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, you yeah. have to let it. sink it's in like they're they're silent a for a bit, so. but then yeah. not. Um, And, like, I I guess you're making a more, like, philosophical argument, but can you, can you speak to that a bit?
1: Well, yeah, I think, I think you're right that we don't really find, um, at least in Wallace, we don't have, say, a thematization of the Holocaust, Uh, you know, you're absolutely right in that regard. Um, I think, I'm just thinking here of the one instance that I can remember, apart from the non-fictional work that's in the Suffering Channel, I believe, Mm -hmm. where the, the uh, 9/11 is sort of teased uh, at the end, where he writes something about one character having almost having only a week or two to, left to live because they work in the World well, Trade Center. Mm. They're that one, I, I think that and that to me in its sort of uh, omission of, of the fact or omission of the event that we all know um, uh, speaks to that treatment, that indirect treatment of trauma, I think as well. But but, but I I think that maybe also the um, ways in which the breakdown of civilization uh in 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 the holocaust is is finding its way into the work of these writers might be through the theory and it might be through the ways in which um the theorists that people like wallace read very much um respond to the holocaust whether it's derrida or whether it's um adorno and I mean, I think Derrida can't be overestimated, I think, as a source for Wallace's thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, in in that critique of Western metaphysics and critique of metaphysics of presence, I think we also find traces of a critique of um, the ways of thinking that may have led to the abstraction that can be, you know, can culminate in this kind of objectification of human life that found its, you know, uh, manifestation in the Holocaust. So maybe, maybe the theory here is also a way in which we can see them Responding indirectly to some of the trends in, in fashions and fashions in thought that came out of that uh, uh, event.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Um. That's fair enough. I I also have a question for you about um, a phrase that you used in in one part of your dissertation that I, I had never. I had to go Google to see what it meant. <laughs> um, and. Uh, And I was like, well, this is really interesting because uh, I think you're saying, um, so the phrase is uh, an aporetic method. Yes. Aporetic? I don't even know how to say it. Yeah.
1: Aporetic? Aporetic? Yeah, totally. And it's like, Mm -hmm.
2: so how are they getting at this? Mm you know, philosophical concepts sort of indirectly, right? That's that's yeah. what this method is?
1: Yeah, totally. I, um, yeah, that's right. And my interest in aporia uh, came, came out of my background in philosophy, so I had studied some Plato, you know, some undergrad work and things mm-hmm. like that, so I was familiar with the idea of aporia. Um, and then reading Deconstruction, the idea of aporia returns, but I always thought that there was a difference between the ways in which a philosopher like Derrida talks about Aporia as a sort of pathless path, you know. It, yeah, that's, I think that's <laughs> okay. the idea, right? Pathless it's a pathless path. Uh-huh. I think that's almost a literal translation of it. Hmm. Um, so so I, I felt like there was something to be said here for making a distinction between um, a philosophy... I almost want to call it a philosophical use of of aporia the way that we might find it in in even early works by philosophers like Plato. And on the other hand, the notion of aporia as it becomes more prevalent than in later deconstructive thought. And my idea and the way I connected to Wallace here was that I think what he's really creating are these cognitive breakdowns, these sort of you know in these interference what's the word not something yeah like a cognitive breakdown or a um uh, a moment where different codes conflict and we can't make sense or we can't make them cohere and this sort of idea of interference that's the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Interference. I was going to say dissonance. Maybe? Yeah, dissonance. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, cognitive dissonance is mm-hmm. another way of describing it, right? I think Tom LeClair, uh, when he talks about Wallace's work, he said that uh, Wallace is, um, you know, trying to fuck his readers up in a sense of creating cognitive dissonance, mm-hmm. and um, that's that was something that that made me think of all the moments in Infinite Jest where characters are, we're leaving them at this point of of kind of breakdown, right? Mm-hmm. Of of um, the inability of making codes or messages or ideas cohere. And I think this this inability mm-hmm. is very much the experience of aporia as it kind of runs through a philosophical tradition as well. Mm-hmm. So when I spoke of a aporetic method, um, that's kind of what I was getting at, this idea of driving a language to a point of breakdown, and then by doing so, gesturing at something that lies beyond the accustomed vocabularies or accustomed ways of thinking. Um, but like Smith said, something that is in that sense off the page, but that the page would hard, sort of help us um, get to in that sense. right? Hmm.
2: Well, and that makes me think of how, you know, Wallace originally wanted to open Infinite Jest with that scene of Hal and the professional conversationalist. Mm-hmm. Conversation, right. And like language is broken down, uh, the inability to really communicate. And he's at a sort of impasse with his father uh, in in a verbal sense uh and i i was really struck by just you using this phrase of stuckness and like a literal stuckness and there's a lot of that in in infinite jest like can you give us some more examples
1: well i start the chapter out with many instances of the tennis players um the younger teenage tennis players sort of wondering about how to resolve certain things and the, the terms Wallace uses often are frozen on this anxiety, or he felt stuck you know couldn 't get out on either side, you know whether mm. it 's the the tennis players or whether it 's even characters like Erdody waiting for his drug dealer, mm-hmm. and then at the moment that um, he hears the doorbell ring for the dealer, he also hears the telephone sound, then he can 't make up his mind which way to go right so he gets I think the formulation is something like splay legged between the two right. sounds. I, I forget <laughs> if that 's the actual formulation, but that 's another literalization and we spoke about Marx. And, and literalizing philosophy, right? I think these are images that are also literalizing in an almost Kafkaesque way um, ideas and thoughts and uh, are in a funny way are pointing us to something that goes beyond what we see or imagine there, right? So that's another um, another one that I always like to think of is the uh, the Erditi scene where, you, mm-hmm. yeah. Moments like that in the book, um, I think. And, and I think readers are different, but to me they always point to um, an idea of, of of needing to move beyond the established ways of thinking here, right? And, and I think that's the effect of uh, aporia in the philosophical tradition is that to create a desire for something else. And it is very much in that desire for something else that I see infinite just succeeding, actually, I've always thought about why I love that book so much. And I think it's because it creates something in me and maybe it creates something in many people who just want to keep reading or want to keep reading this long work or want to keep reading literature in general. Um, But this desire to move beyond the, like maybe not being able to stay with that moment of stuckness, right? Even though it is Hmm. a moment of insight, it's also the horror that Wallace heard in the silence and in in end zone.
2: Oh, that's super interesting, and I think it applies to a lot of uh, life. And I think that you, <laughs> you uh, going to throw out a general term here. <laughs> it does. Well, it does. Is it just makes me think that you know, there's some some bit of depression that's framed that way, oh, right? Yeah. That it's like you're 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 stuck or you're unable to to <laughs> progress. And um, you know, there there are just lots of, of things that that I think wallace is interested in hamlet for example and yes. that like um, w- hamlet's equivocation yes. and uh, inability to really make a decision although he's very articulate in his inability to yeah. make a decision. <laughs> yes yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> i think there's probably something quite meta about infinite Jest too and a lot of people's experience reading it is the feeling of stuckness yeah because you don't really feel any tangible sense of progress as you're reading it. Except right. for if you're reading it maybe on a train in one week. <laughs> but like if you spend an hour reading Infinite Jest and you look at where your bookmark is, like yeah. wow, might what feel did like I just stuck. spend my yeah. hour doing reading yeah. like thirteen pages or something so yeah. dense and I hit a bunch of end notes and yeah. like got derailed. So maybe there's a meta element to mm. the stuckness that the reader mm. feels stuck while they're reading it.
1: Yeah. I remember two things and on that note and one was that I think in that uh 20th Anniversary uh, Forward by Dave Tom Eggers. Diffle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he talks about how just the experience of reading Infinite Jest makes him feel like he's become a better person because he's sort of stuck with the stuckness, right? It's like <laughs> a monasticism element Yeah, to it. perhaps, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: and see I've never felt that. I felt yeah. like the people who read it just to like check off something as an accomplishment like oh I climbed Mount Everest and I <laughs> you know it's like you 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 read infinite just just to say that you did yeah. rather than like treat it like a work of art which demands something of the reader beyond time. Yeah. And uh I I'm just not a big fan of that. I think that it's unfortunate that Infinite just gets lumped in. I mean yes. culturally, at least in our moment on Twitter or whatever, you never hear people bragging about like, Oh well did you read William Gass's The Tunnel? <laughs> That's right. And, yes. You know, did you read The Recognition? Or right. did you read Bottom's Dream? Okay. It's like yeah. no, it's just yeah. become shorthand yeah. as like mm-hmm. For, for all these other things well, it, which...
1: Like the Ulysses of our time in that sense, right? Yeah. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I was thinking of is Wallace Ames for the book too. And I think he said something in the, in the interviews with Lipsky that he wanted to show readers that they were able to do more than they thought they were able to do. I'm just paraphrasing here, right? right? And to teach them something about their own willingness to engage and mm-hmm. their own willingness to um, be committed to something perhaps, you know. And in that sense, I think... Um, the book kind of tricks you into that, right? It is, in that sense, the failed entertainment that he mm-hmm. wanted it to be, right? Yeah. It, it, because it's so entertaining, even though it doesn't really lead to that kind of a moment of kind epiphany, of right? Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have that epiphany. Mm-hmm. But um, it does teach you something about yourself. At least that's, I think, what Wallace was trying to show, in a sense, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think I've said this on the, the podcast before, but it's like, um, in a way, I have been reading this book for like 20 years yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like as like i have never stopped really reading the book and like if you treat i don't know engagement with art not necessarily this book but i think in general um then uh, it makes me think of this other thing that i'm gonna throw out there from a philosopher named kieran setia uh and he wrote a book about like dealing with a midlife crisis through philosophy yeah. it's called midlife okay. we'll link to it but what one point that he makes in there is that like you should seek out activities that are what he calls atelic meaning that they don't really have telos. an end mm-hmm. atelos right. Right? right and they that don't order. they don't really yeah. they don't really have a goal or you know like if you read infinite Jest and then you finish and you close the book and you walk away you're like hey i did my goal yeah. i did it yeah. But it's like if you look at it differently, it's sort of like I look at it like hiking. Yeah. Like you, you can never really be done hiking. Right. <laughs> like yeah. like you can hike today, <laughs> yeah. but then there's another hike to do tomorrow and like you can never really be the best at it either. Yeah. It's sort of like you just do it. And there's a lot of things like this that he says in this book, like gardening, like, like uh, golfing. Uh, <laughs> golfing. <laughs> uh, I mean tennis. Maybe. For some people, Any, anyway. A lot of hobbies, you know, right. anything that's just like a recreational hobby, but right. like hiking is a good example, kayaking. Um, like you just go out and do it and have fun. You don't think like, I'm going to, I'm going to conquer this thing. Um, and there's a sort of like stuckness that I think as an adult, maybe in midlife, you, you sort of plateau Mm -hmm. at things. And so I think about this with Wallace's writing a lot where like, you know, did he, I think that he did with the Pale King, um, feel like, you know, was he stuck? or was he mm-hmm. unable to progress? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the fact that you focused on that was super interesting. And then tying it back into silence, I feel like that is a huge part of what Markson is doing in pretty much all of his work mm. uh, after Wittgenstein's mistress as well, Yeah. Uh, which is a lot about solitude and how it relates to silence, solitude and straight up, just loneliness uh which also comes across pretty strongly in infinite jest so um the the demand for silence though i mean i'm not sure that i totally have that down would you mind going back to this a little bit about like i don't know with metaphysics or aesthetics i feel like i'm missing some some piece of the puzzle here
1: well what i was thinking there it is it is part of this um philosophical trend really in the Second part coming out of the first part of the 20th century um, to uh, think beyond the established ways of thinking that, in the thinking of some philosophers like Derrida or Adorno, or, you know, some critical theorists have led straight to the kind of reification and objectifications um, that lead to the concentration camps. So, for these people. Um, the, the, the whole civilization is sen- in a sense has become um, invalid because of what it led to in the camps mm. so so uh, th- that's kind of what I'm thinking of there, this demand for silence this sort of um, um, inability to say something if you will authentic or uh, mm-hmm. non uh, something that is not caught up in, in, in the metaphysics or the ways of thinking that in their thinking really lead directly to objectification and dehumanization, right? Um, and, and so then that's, that then leads to the whole trend of post-metaphysics in, in 20th century philosophy. And so many philosophers really try to, to think how to continue philosophy through the figure of silence uh, and in ways in which we can show what cannot ordinarily be said. You know, so, so even, in, you know, so in, in Derrida, for example, you have these, uh, you know, you know, infinite permutations of phrase and returning to thought and returning to certain ideas and, and by m- multiple ways of, of, um, challenging something and making it more and more complicated he's really trying to i think gesture past what he's actually saying in plain language you know even in even in nietzsche you you find things like that where you continue to speak in a certain vocabulary even though the consequences of your own thought have already propelled you beyond that mm. but you still have to speak within language and language the way we use it for these thinkers at least is always already caught up within certain ways of thinking about reality and and so the demand for silence is maybe a demand for more authenticity and representation right so that that's sort of what i was thinking of there
2: well and it made me think of a tweet i don't know if you saw that any of you saw this the other day of someone saying like you know it's sort of a shame that no writer is really up to the task of like synthesizing the current moment in history yeah. and like do do you see some of the same parallels with like sort of right-wing fascism being on the rise again?
1: Wow, that's such a good question. Um <laughs> I mean I, what it makes me think of is actually the engender interview that you posted um mm-hmm. yesterday, Matt, mm-hmm. and Wallace's yeah. way of thinking about his contemporary moment in 1989, and seeing that no new way of thinking about the present had Arrived, and he uses a heidegger quote actually saying the gods have uh, gone away the gods have not yet arrived or right. something like that yeah. right which is to say that the old ways of thinking are gone there have been discarded devalued but we also haven't come up with the new ones yet mm. and and i think this is a situation that he found himself in in 89 And yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the whole phenomenon around uh, Trumpism, et cetera, in many ways is a problem of representation, too, I think, because we seem to be feeding into the phenomenon the more we critique it. Right. And so that I also don't know the answer to how to do that properly. (laughs) But um, I think that um, if you're on the cutting edge of your time, you probably will find yourself sort of uncertain as to how to move forward.
2: Mm. Well, I think it's a sense of like frustration and that, you know, the inability of, I don't know, the typical cultural critique that people, uh, you know, who have had any sort of academic upbringing, it's inadequate, it's inadequate to respond to like political reality Mm. at the moment, you know, when, when you're, when you're pressed for, you know, what do you, what would you do in in this scenario, a lot of people I think are, are finding themselves incapable of the task. Yeah. And I think that's a really frustrating feeling and, you know, not wanting to wait until that silence, like not wanting to wait until Mm -hmm. things progress Mm -hmm. that point. But yeah,
0: because there's an urgency to what's happening right now. Well,
1: absolutely. And this is sort of the urgency I see at the, at the center of the, the Wallace nexus that I try to describe in my dissertation too, which is this tension between on the one hand, like you like you said Matt what, or what you call the demand for silence and maybe as a way of staying authentic but on the other hand the the pressing need for speaking the absolute impossibility of staying speechless right when you're writing a novel and <laughs> you're writing a novel so that's yeah. by itself an ironic enterprise sure. <laughs> right but but even on a political level you know like how can you you have to continue speaking and speechlessness is simply not an option mm-hmm. and I think that also is a similar situation that uh, Wallace and people like Smith found themselves in in the 90s and especially on the American scene when you know the Cold War was over and mm-hmm. it seemed like the defining other had moved away or was no the longer end of history that's right <laughs> Fukuyama writes yeah, that yeah. It makes that end of history thesis yeah um, so things you know need some kind of self-definition in a ways so it's not enough to just stay silent you have to speak and that demand for for speech is more pressing now than ever definitely
2: Well, and I think you, you get it right in your dissertation and in that the response that, you know, maybe falls most directly with writers is this indirect response, right? It's not their It's not their role to all of a sudden swing from political, you know, polemic to polemic. It's, it's an indirect response that's supposed to change thinking in a way that, that political speech can't do. Yeah. Uh, so e- even though it's a response to c- political speech, it's this other thing, which maybe you have a good name for it that I've missed it out, but something about I don't know humanism, it's humanizing mm-hmm. uh, ideas and thoughts that are that are indirectly related to those com- yeah. Yeah. maybe Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, absolutely, and I think it also brings us back to uh, the idea of literalization of thought that we started out with, and this idea that. Um, there's something there that fiction and that literature can do about making us feel something about abstract ideas mm-hmm. that might not be as readily available when we read a political tract or, you know, right. or a scathing critique of sorts, but yeah. something that we The show don't tell? That, isn't it <laughs> funny, Because the tract right?
0: will be a tell, will
1: tell, right? That's right, I mean, I, yeah. I was sort of struck by and how sure show don't tell comes back in a philosophically yeah, resonant yeah. sense through this work, yeah, hmm. but it is a precept of creative writing workshops, right? <laughs> right. But it has real philosophical significance, I think, and, and to some degree what Wallace does in that Mark an essay i think he really uh, charges show don't tell as a as a workshop mantra uh, with philosophical significance mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: that's cool so the minute any writer finishes a book the first question anyone asks them is like what are you doing next <laughs> 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 what's next so you ju- you just submitted this dissertation yeah. <laughs> Uh, what's next for you, Tim?
1: Well, um, I'm still teaching here at the University of Victoria and I uh, want to turn this dissertation into an academic book. Mm-hmm. And so what I hope to do the next year... Ever heard book... of Bloomsbury? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm <laughs> pretty <laughs> into these <laughs> <Yeah>. Wallace books. <laughs> yeah. So I, I hope to be able to, uh, you know, turn uh, the dissertation, which was written for a committee to a, into a book that's hopefully written for more than four people. <laughs> mm. Maybe uh, 14. Yeah, maybe 14, yeah, maybe that'd 20. Nice. That'd be better than four, <laughs> right? But I was happy that you guys already read it. In addition, so it makes it six at this point. That's pretty good. Um, but yeah, that's what, that's my plan.
2: What are, What are you teaching? Tell us about your, your oh, class. This is good. You're Great. Like
1: this. Um So I right now I'm teaching an intro class to just academic reading and writing. But next term I'll be teaching a 400 level course here at Uvic on contemporary American fiction. Um, so that's something that, uh, you know, I'm very excited about. And mm-hmm. I just put the syllabus together and we'll be reading um, some of the classics. We'll be doing Toni Morrison and, of course, White Noise by DeLillo. But I have also um, assigned the Wallace Reader, which I think is a very handy uh, mm. book to teach Wallace, because I was very uh, reluctant to assign Infinite Jest for the reason that, you know, like we said earlier, it's just so long and I didn't want people to jump off. And so now what I hope to do is to really make that reader the cornerstone of my class and um, do short stories, do some essays mm-hmm. um, and and give people an idea and, and excerpts from the novels as well. Yeah. And give people an idea of what Wallace is about and his relationship to some of the other people in the class. And mm-hmm. hopefully then after that, they'll be excited enough to pick up Infinite Jest and the Pale King yeah, in their entirety. Yeah. That's going to be my pitch at the end of class for sure. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Like a book club in the summer. That's you right. Yeah, yeah. Or you can do an online reading with Shazia, right? Yeah, <laughs> a, yeah. he's done it three times? That's right. Yeah.
2: Guiding. Yeah. <laughs> well, e- even um, if you have that one Wallace book on the syllabus, be sure and send us your syllabus yeah. at the the DFW Society. We now collect. Oh, yeah. oh, great! And to a to a database of everyone who's taught Wallace and. You know, I think for people who who have taught him as a sort of sampler, or people who have taught a whole course where you do read Infinite Jest, yeah. they're always interested in how how to structure that. Great. So we have we have something like ninety examples now wow. on uh, on our our syllabus mm-hmm. bank. So go and check that out, and please add to it. And this is a call not just for you, Tim, but anyone out there teaching Wallace, like send us your syllabus and we'll add it to the Mm -hmm. database Mm -hmm. and uh, you can go and download all these other ones. I think they're actually in in a Google drive and you can sort through them um, and to see how Wallace has been taught Mm -hmm. um, in a variety of, of, of ways. So we're always interested in, in more of that, but, but in general, I am hugely interested in contemporary American fiction too. So, Mm -hmm. so please, um, Mm -hmm. I, I have to also ask you then as like someone who's an expert in this field, like, uh, give us some some even more contemporary stuff like what is some of the best stuff you've read this year or stuff you're excited about
1: stuff uh, a novel i just uh, read for the first time was ruth ozeki's a tale for the time being i don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with her work
2: I, I I have yeah. uh, I own this book and I've read about fifty pages of it. Thought it was amazing. Yeah. The premise the premise of the book is incredible,
1: isn't it? I loved it. I, I read it in a very short period of time this summer. I absolutely loved it and decided I needed to assign it. So uh-huh. I'm looking forward to teaching that one. That's probably the one I would mention. What is the premise again? I think you might have mentioned this. Well, it's, uh, it's so there's a bit of meta fiction <laughs> in, it, in it in the sense that a, a woman by the name of Ruth, who lives out here uh-huh. on Cortes Island, uh-huh. like Ruth Ozeki herself, uh-huh. uh, walks on the beach. One day and finds um, uh, washed on the shore a Hello Kitty box and uh, in the box is a manuscript uh, with a diary written by a young Japanese girl who writes about how she um, is going to kill herself and so Ruth then Mm -hmm. speculates whether this was washed um, onto the shore as a remnant right. of the tsunami, right? And yeah. and then she's trying to figure out how she can help this uh, young, ostensibly suicidal girl and, wow. and I don't want to give it away. It's a fantastic read. I think, yeah. yeah, one of the best I've read this year for sure and cool. I think it uh, continues some of the themes um, that I found interesting in Wallace and it also goes into some uh, interesting intercultural um uh, meditations on zen buddhism and quantum mechanics and uh, <laughs> literature right. in general so it's it's a really good read yeah oh, cool yeah anything else it's been good well i, I i'm just I'm looking at your bookshelf there dave i'm looking at <laughs> lincoln and the bardo and i have not read read it yet uh-huh. but it is on my reading list yeah. next so i'm very much looking forward to reading the new saunders yeah yeah, yeah it's good i like it a lot yeah
2: do you keep up with um contemporary german fiction as well I try to. Do you read German? Yeah, I, yeah. I
1: try to. Um, it was hard during the dissertation process, but yes, uh, <laughs> uh, definitely. Oh, was it all consuming of every aspect of your life, or something? Like it was that? more that I really focused on English fiction, you know. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. and it was also that, list, so. <laughs> yeah. but I just didn't. Well, yeah.
2: <laughs> can you recommend? Can you recommend us? Uh, like, what are people talking about in in Germany these days? Or like, do you know? Uh, especially for someone who hasn't been translated into English yet, I'm always interested in any tips for that. If you have any,
1: yeah, I, I'm like I said, I'm not in, really up to date on what's the newest uh, on the German scene. Uh, a German writer uh, that I've been. Fascinated with is a woman by the name of uh, Julie tse She has a couple of really great novels out there. I am not sure if they've been translated at all, but she's she's quite good. Yeah, Julie. Tse. Can can
2: you spell that last on uh,
1: J U L I, and then the last word is Z E H, and her last name means toe in translation. <laughs> mm. Yeah,
2: interesting. She's interesting. Uh, I, I appreciate that. That's a very selfish question, but um, I, I have to ask it. Um, your continuing interest in, in Wallace, is there any, um, I'm curious if you have any, any other sort of academic avenues to explore, or are you looking to other horizons
1: well, one thing I want to do is extend the Wallace Nexus a bit for the book. So I'm looking I was at ask about this, yeah, right. I'm looking at definitely including a chapter on Tom McCarthy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, this was something Jeff Sievers recommended to me during mm-hmm. my oral defense, and I'm looking at that right now. Um, and for me personally, uh, the reading Ruth Ozeki's book and her interest in Uh, zen buddhism she's a zen buddhist monk herself really Mm -hmm. made me think a lot about um the east west uh connection Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm very intrigued by connecting uh, Eastern and Western philosophy, uh, notions of Taoism and Buddhism in literature, Mm -hmm. um, and and thinking a lot about uh, that tradition. Now, that is something that Heidegger actually started in the 1940s and 50s Mm. when he started talking to uh, Japanese monks about uh, some their metaphysical concepts. And Mm. I think that uh, from an academic point of view, that might be something I might consider... Uh, pursuing a little bit further these um, can yeah especially the different notions of of silence aesthetics um, and um, metaphysics in the different uh, traditions there mm. on the other hand I'm also really intrigued by uh, a lot of the academic work that has come out recently as a part of the sort of economic turn in in um, mm. Uh, literary studies like and Severs's book. Seavers' book, I yeah. think, is a fantastic example, mm-hmm. yeah, of that. And I'm cu- really curious uh, about that and want to read up more. Um, you know, mm-hmm. hopefully, maybe I can put together a postdoc project on that. But <laughs> thinking about neoliberalism, I think it's just something is hard to avoid in our time and age. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. curious how literature responds to it. And there's been so much great work on that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, cool. So Tim, for
0: someone having worked on this project for what, like, three, four years. Yeah, For longer someone having <laughs> yeah, longer than that. So, someone who's read your dissertation in its entirety, what's kind of like, what's the primary thing that you want them to walk away uh, sensing about your contribution to to the discussion on Wallace?
1: Um, Maybe two things. On the one hand, I think that um, the work of Stanley Cavell merits our interest as mm-hmm. well as scholars. Mm-hmm. It really does, and people have done great work on this. Uh, Jeff Severs has done work on it. Uh, um, Claire Hayes-Brady has done some great work on it, but I still think we need to get more deeply into mm-hmm. um, the ways of thinking about skepticism and the ordinary and metaphysics that come out of Cavell's work. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, um, I'm still, I still have this project of recuperating a different kind of irony in Wallace and thinking mm-hmm. about mm-hmm how we can maybe still continue to think of him as an ironic writer Mm -hmm. even though you know he also pens critiques of irony yeah
0: yeah. this is something that came up when we talked to Andrew Savage on his episode is he's like well irony is not necessarily inherently bad that's right I mean there are caustic forms of irony which Wallace you know obviously tackles but irony is also you know, a great political tool. It's it right. satirizes Absolutely. things that, that ought to be satirized and yeah. made ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so it is a vehicle for yeah. for political change and right. and things like that. So yeah, I think I think we need to qualify that how we talk about irony a That's bit. That's right. Yeah. And I
1: think we need to think about the question of power in terms of irony. Mm-hmm. When I heard, you know, when Trump gave that speech a couple of days or weeks ago, um Uh, mocking um, the testimony by Dr. Ford uh, and Mm. her audience responded Mm -hmm. with laughter. Um, I thought, you know, this is interesting. We have a form of sarcasm and irony here, but it is so embedded in cynicism and uh, an inverse power relation that Mm -hmm. the irony itself is so wrong-headed or Mm -hmm. the sarcasm, if you will, right? So we have to think about questions of power with regards to irony. Um, And uh, to me, a thinker who's really great on that is Jonathan Lear. He's a psychoanalyst and philosopher who wrote a book Uh, a couple of years ago called in defense of irony Mm -hmm. and he Mm -hmm. really tries to recuperate a sort of socratic notion of irony as a as a you know way of insight and a a form of of gesturing beyond our established vocabularies and and Mm -hmm. ways of thinking and and i think that's where irony still really has a role to play and in some ways that is for me at least the effect that i take away from reading wallace's work as well Mm -hmm. and like i said at the beginning of the podcast you know like a book that makes me laugh but then also makes me wonder wait Why did I laugh? What happened here, right? What is it that that on the one hand is being shown to me through this affective experience of laughter? And I think that's a valuable experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great.
0: That's cool. Um, is your dissertation published anywhere that people can see yet? Like is it no, out on it, the UVic website? No, they or... put an embargo
1: okay. on it for a year. Um, oh, nice. But so again, you can work on publishing. That's right. Okay, so again, that... I, I hope to make it even uh, more readable <laughs> in the meantime. And then <laughs> hopefully people can check out the full book at some point. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Um, do you have any other publications people can check out or
0: uh, like an academia.edu page? I anything, have a, a like website, uh,
1: yeah. timperason.com, T-I-M-P-E-R-S-O-N-N.com. I have some of my German and my English writing there and some okay. of my music as well. Yeah. Um, and um, I have one uh, review essay of Dave Lipsky's book on wallets. Mm-hmm. All which is um, has been published a couple of years back by Post45. Mm-hmm. So that might be something people could read. And cool, cool. At this point, that's all I have out there. But again, I hope that yeah. more is coming soon. Right. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And you're on Twitter? People yes, can find I'm on you. Twitter as well. Yeah. What's your handle again?
1: At Tim Person.
0: All right. We'll link to all that stuff okay, in the show great. notes. So uh, easy access for people. Uh, any sort of final thoughts, Tim? Anything we didn't cover that you were hoping to talk about? About Wallace in general? About your work on him? Next steps?
1: Well, I just want to say that I really appreciate being on your podcast today, and I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. I don't know if you saw oh, it; thanks, I also man. gave you a little shout out in the dissertation. It's, you're being oh, mentioned thanks, in there buddy. somewhere. Cool. <laughs> um, I really think it's wonderful, and um, I have learned a lot just by listening to your podcast episodes. So keep up the great work. Hey, thank you, Tim. Well, thank, we thank, thank you
2: for it. being on today, and I've really learned a lot. And like I've got, um, I printed out a, a bunch of your um, dissertation and have marked it up. So I might have more questions for you later. Wow, you being touched. That'd be uh, awesome. Yeah. And, but I, I, just want to say, thank you. We've really learned mm. it. And like even coming out of this of like, Oh God, I got to go pick up that Ruth Ozeki book again. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I want, I've, I've seen that book in defensive irony. So I've really learned a lot Great. and sent me back to the books, uh, which wonderful. is, which is my goal for any one of these, um, episodes. Mm-hmm. So I know that our other listeners out there will thank you as well. So, mm. um, Let's be in touch. Awesome, yeah. Dave, uh, should we, do we have a couple of little housekeeping uh-huh. things to take care of before we go? We do.
0: I think the primary one, uh, and this sort of coincides with our third anniversary, is that uh, we mentioned last episode that we've been like, uh, you know, humming and hawing about the idea of starting a Patreon, and uh, after a lot of discussion, and, and uh, <laughs> how would you describe our process, Matt?
2: I don't know Iterations Iterations
0: know. Uh, We finally decided to pull the trigger And, and launch a Patreon Which we uh, went live on Friday So that's two days ago now It's Sunday uh, And already I gotta say The response has been so fantastic And humbling And we just can't believe how uh, generous And supportive uh, so many of our listeners Have been already Even just since launching that So a huge thank you to, uh, to everyone Who's responded so positively positively and we already have 15 patrons uh, and we set three tiers so at one dollar you'd be added to an email list that gives you a heads up before an episode comes out about what we cooked up uh, which we've never really given much idea to people about what the next episode is Um, so that's the $1 a month tier at $2 a month. You get that in addition to being, uh, given a shout out on one of the episodes, uh, you know, the next one after you sign up, uh, as well as we'll have a, uh, a part of our website that also lists all of our, uh, patron supporters there. And then a $3 a month tier that has both of those two things, as well as kind of a periodic, uh, merchandise send out. Um, you know, which in the past we made stickers, there could be, you know, various items down the road that, that are in the kind of the stationary type wheelhouse or perhaps more or different stickers or, or other kinds of like fun, uh, things that we have kind of cooking up, uh, that will be sent out, uh, you know, what was the word we used, Matt? Occasionally, okay, occasionally. occasionally, which could mean like, you know, annually or maybe biannually. annually <laughs> we'll have to kind of see how that goes. Um, but, yeah, we just we just want to thank uh, 15 people specifically right now. Uh, these are the early adopters. So we want to thank uh, especially Joel Crane, uh, who is the very first um, Patreon supporter. Uh, he, he signed up, I think, maybe three minutes after I posted it on Twitter, the link. Like, it was extremely fast. And then he followed it up with a tweet that said, never signed up for something so fast. And so that was just like... You know, in, uh, incredibly life-affirming uh, for us to see. So thank you, Joel, to you. Uh, we also want to thank Brian Cooper, Dennis Frank, Rob Boyce, Marianne Brough, Mark Reapy, Alison Bennell, John Notkey, Andrea Lawrence L. Sheridan, who is the guest on episode 37, as well as Diego Baez, who is also the guest on episode 37. I really think that we should be paying you guys. Uh, for coming on the show <laughs> as opposed to you supporting us, <laughs> uh, we want to thank Jackie Reimer, Amago Vasquino. I hope I didn't butcher your last name there. Uh, this is a fun one. Bo Butler, who is the host of the Pension in Public podcast, with whom we've had uh, a notable podcast beef over <laughs> contemporary American writers. Uh, I, I messaged him after saying that I was putting down the Trident, just going to shelf it. Until you know a delillo podcast came out that we could beef with, uh, or or maybe a lot worse, like a Franzen podcast, and then I'd pick up the Trident for sure in that case. Yeah, um, call me in. <laughs> call me. In. <laughs> we got Tim's like backup. Uh, I might
2: have to go into hiding this
0: <laughs> Actually, Don delillo podcast would be amazing. Please, someone start putting <laughs> that. I will listen to that all the time. Uh, we want to thank Esther Zapata. And Michelle Cepeda. Martin. Cepeda. Cepeda. It's got to be Cepeda. Cepeda. Sorry, Esther. Thank you so much love, to you. We love Esther. She's a favorite. Yeah, Esther's presence on Twitter has been... She discovered the podcast, what, like six months ago, Matt? And binged yeah. every episode in like maybe three weeks, a month, two months, like really quick. And was so effusive on Twitter about every episode. She she's a, an
2: amazing writer. Everyone a journalist. Yeah. It's, I think it's uh, Esther J. Cepeda at... Uh, on Twitter, so go follow her, we'll, she's we'll me we'll link that
0: as well um, and so those 15 people you're, they in the last two days have become uh, supporters through Patreon I want to thank them so much uh, their names will go on the website as well and uh, any future people who you know sign up for whatever those tiers I mentioned uh, you will get a similar shout out on a future episode um, and just, I mean, really I think that you know doing something like this for three years and putting you know not a little amount of time and effort and humanity into it it just feels really like like i said life affirming and um really humbling that people are you know excited to, su- to support what we're doing um to help with some of our costs and and things like that it's just it's incredible. Well, so. And as,
2: as Tim can verify, that we need um, some better technological solutions <laughs> for r- recording often in three different time zones uh, all <laughs> around right. the world. Uh, uh-huh. uh, so this will allow us to um, get better at podcasting. I feel like we're still in the early stages of it. Yeah, this has all been and, totally uh,
0: DIY enterprise. You know, like we've figured out how to edit stuff, you know, just using like youtube tutorials and like all that kind of stuff so
2: and by we we mean dave sure,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah i do all the editing so that's been that's been my uh, my big homework assignment over the last few years um if you want to check that out uh you can go to patreon.com slash concavity show uh we kept things consistent there with the same handle on twitter and instagram and our gmail account um if that doesn't interest you at all great uh nothing's gonna change uh we're not gonna do any like exclusive stuff with our episodes that only certain people uh who donate or whatever are gonna get so no change there uh love you totally fantastic if you don't ever go to the website great um and of course would you agree with that matt you want to back that
2: up oh totally <laughs> totally of
0: yeah this is, this is like a totally uh you know sideline enterprise here um of course we always want to thank robin o'neill for her her amazing artwork and as our podcast icon and of course always to parquet courts and andrew savage for their song instant disassembly as our intro and outro music music and i gotta say a special shout out to andrew super cool guy to hang out with in person we had a great time just talking about you know the Me Too stuff, how do we think about Wallace in that in that context, he had some it's really good thoughts on that. Yeah, um, he yeah, was just a lot of fun to hang out with. He put me on the guest list for the show, so that, was, right. that was really cool. Uh, and the show itself was a riot, like it was one of the funnest rock shows I've been to in a mm-hmm. very, very long time. Uh, they did not play Instant Assembly, uh, so a bit of a grudge uh, held there, Andrew, <laughs> but uh, I'm willing to let it slide. Uh, just kidding uh, no the show was, was absolutely amazing it was so fun uh, so if you get a chance to see Parquet Courts on this tour do yourself a friggin service they are fantastic Um,
2: anything else Matt any final things no I just want to thank Tim for coming thanks on again, the show Tim. tonight oh, thank Again, thanks really for coming to my house it.
1: yeah thanks I really appreciate talking it into this tiny microphone <laughs> That's right. like kitchen table <laughs> yeah. thanks so much Matt it was great chat Yeah. yeah.
2: no I, I hope we can continue it I'd love to yeah Awesome, thanks again, everybody.
0: We got an hour, twenty six minutes and a half. Sweet. That's great. That's yeah. a really sweet. Yeah, is that a good length? That's a great length. Nice. Yeah. Sometimes we'll, we we'll edit that like, down
2: to about eleven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's our
0: recurring joke that we say to guests after we've finished is how much we're gonna butcher and then just absolutely take everything savage. out of context. Yeah, <laughs>